may be seated. Well, today really provides kind of a transition message for us. We're finishing this third week of this series on John chapter 17. And then next week we're starting a series called Building a Stronger Church, where for six weeks uh, we're going to, normally we, as a, as a general rule, we'll study through books or chapters of the Bible. Uh, over the next six weeks we're going to look at some key themes, some key ideas, really vision related of what it looks like to be a strong uh, church as Redemption Church Gateway. And so if you would call this your church home, I want you to be here next week. I know that most people are not able to come to church every week, but next week's the week you want to be here. And you want to be here through this whole series and, and really um, try to take a look at what it looks like, what God's calling us to be as the people of Redemption Gateway. Uh, but today we're finishing Jesus' prayer here. And get this, the people Jesus is praying for in this passage is us. Is us. Think about that. Jesus Christ prayed for you. Jesus Christ prayed for you. We see this in verse 20. Up to this point, he had been praying for his disciples, those 12 guys that followed him closely. And in verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So if you're here today and you have trust in Christ, if you would consider yourself a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you believe in him through the words that have come through Jesus' disciples, through the written word, through the spoken message of good news. You believe in that. And so Jesus here is praying for you. He's finishing his prayer, praying for us. That's why we're calling uh, this particular message and this series Jesus' Prayer for His Church. Jesus is praying for us, those that would come after, those that would become his church. And here we get his heartbeat. Here's what he really wants. Now, the theme of this is unity, is unity. That's kind of the big idea that Jesus is, is praying for. He wants us to have unity with his Father, uh, with, with unity with God. He wants us to have unity with one another. And he wants that so that the whole world would, would believe that he was sent by God. That's what he wants. It's, it's about unity. And I just got to tell you on the front end, I hate the way the world talks about unity. There is so much mumbo-jumbo, unity, can't we all just get along, can't we all be friends, garbage. No, we can't get along. No, we can't all be united. No. I mean, is anyone else sick of this? I mean, maybe it's just me, but, but it feels to me like in, this cult in the culture we live in, there's this idea that we should all be united just because. But then if you take a stand on any sort of position that you feel is a conviction from God's Word or, or based on morality or based on even natural law or anything, well, now you're being divisive. You're supposed to just love everybody and, be, and accept everybody for no reason. Now, should we love everybody? Yes. We're made in God's image. Every person's made in God's image. Do we have to accept and champion the behavior of everyone in the name of some kind of fake unity? My word, I hope not. But that's what's being called for in our culture. And there, here's the reality. As, and, and I think the call for that is probably something deep within humanity that, that connects with what Jesus is praying here for, that, that we know that we were created to not be so divided. And yet until we come together around something, we'll never have unity. It'll all just be a show. And Jesus here calls us to have unity, and unity around and in him. That's what this is about. So this is really the outline uh, today. Jesus wants us to have unity with God, unity with each other, so that the world will notice. 
It begins with unity with God. That's what Jesus prays for first here. And we looked at this last week. That This isn't exactly a linear idea. Jesus kind of repeats and kind of has some of the same themes throughout this prayer. But you see this idea that, that Jesus wants us to have unity with God, closeness, connection with God. Look at verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now, now listen, do you notice how radical Jesus' language is here? He's not just saying that they would be with us, that they would be close to me, that they would be in us. He's praying to his Father, Father, just as you are in me and I'm in you, like we're in each other. One God, three persons. I pray that they would have that kind of closeness to God. Wow. In. Not just with. In. And he, he, he repeats this idea. Verse 23. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Then in verse 26. I made known to them your name. Right, Jesus has said this before. Like He came to reveal God. To reveal who God was. He says I will continue to make it known. Right? He's still going to the cross here. And on the cross, we get a, a full picture of how radically God loves us. See, he's still going to make it known. He says, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus here is talking about unity with him. This is why the scripture over and over talks about us being in Christ, in him. You should go through your New Testament sometime and read the letters, especially Paul's letters and Ephesians or Colossians or Philippians, and, and look at how many times it says in Christ or in him. The scripture says that, that Christ, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Jesus is introducing a huge idea here of unity with God. And this idea of unity with God, we're going to do a little theology here for a minute. Uh, we like doctrine. We like theology. Some people think that's boring. Some people think that's divisive. Uh, we think it's actually really interesting and really important. Because what you believe about God shapes how you live. And, and, and this in particular is just critical for having a vibrant relationship with God. You've got to understand that unity with God has with it two components. Union with Christ and communion with Christ. Union with Christ and communion with Christ. Now we're going to spend a few minutes on this and kind of unpack this. So let me show you first. Here's union with Christ. Here's what union with Christ is. Union with Christ is God's unilateral action in which those who were dead are made alive, those who lived in darkness begin to see the light, and those who were enslaved to sin are set free to be loved and to love. In union with Christ, we're receptive. Now, there's some things in there that you may just gloss over that you can't gloss over here, okay? Here's what, here's what this definition says. This definition says that we are all naturally, as we come into the world, dead, in darkness, and enslaved. All of us. Every single one of us. That's how we come into the world. We inherit the sin nature of our first father, Adam. So we're spiritually dead. 
When we walk in darkness, we love the darkness. We don't want our deeds and our things to be exposed. We like that. And we're enslaved, right? We, all of us have things in our lives that you go, man, I just wish I could get rid of this. I wish I could dump this. I wish I could just leave this behind. But we're enslaved. And so we come into the world that way, and then we actualize it by our actions and, and, and prove by, that we're not just sinners by nature, but also by choice. That's who we are. And so something radical has to happen. If we're to be made united with Christ, if we're going to be made uh, together with God, something has to happen. Because that sin, that breaking of God's law, that belittling of God and not caring about him, that breaks the relationship. So something has to happen. Well, what happens? God's unilateral action. God, in his great mercy, sends his son Jesus into the world who never sins, who dies on a cross to pay the punishment that we deserve, who rises again to prove that he's victorious over sin and to conquer death, and who promises to return. God's unilateral action, God's grace, God's moving into our lives, right? And so many of us have a story where it's like, I wasn't looking for God, I wasn't trying to get God figured out, and then wham, someone came into my life and told me about him, and I saw the need I had, And I received it. All I could do is just receive this gift of God's grace. That's union with Christ. Now here's what happens in union with Christ. When you receive this gift by faith, by trusting him, you just say, Jesus, I, I trust that I could never be made right with God apart from you. I received your gift. When you do that, you are united to Christ So much so that God treats Christ's experiences as yours. Another way to talk about it is you become clothed with Christ. Right? Here's you. Christ clothes you. Christ covers you. So when you go into the courtroom of heaven and the case is made against you and all of your life is laid out and all of of the things you've done and all of the words you've said and all of the motives you've had, And believe me, at that moment, the bad outweighs the good. Because even the times we try to do good, a lot of times we have twisted motives and all kinds of things, right? And what should happen in that moment should be guilty. Guilty. And and, and that separation from God, if we're guilty, means we're separated from him forever, which means hell. What union with Christ means is that when we go into that courtroom of heaven... Rather than seeing our long list of offenses, the Father sees Jesus' perfect record of sinlessness and obedience. And so we get not guilty. Is it because we're actually not guilty? No. It's because we get a righteousness of another. We get the righteousness of Christ. This is union with Christ. This is a glorious thing. This means that you can, by grace, go to heaven and have all your sins washed away. That's union with Christ. It's beautiful. All you do is receive by faith. You don't get this gift by being a good person, by trying harder, by giving a lot of money to a religious organization, by attending church. You just receive it by faith. That's union. Now that's great. That's an unbelievable thing. But there's a second part of unity with God, and it's communion. Communion with Christ. Here's what this is. is that Those who are united to Christ 
respond to God's loving embrace, we're responsive. So this means you've experienced the not guilty, right? You're walking out of the courtroom, and the question you have at that moment is, what's your relationship with God going to be like then? I mean, God has unilaterally stepped in, saved you when you didn't deserve it. How are you going to treat him? How are you going to relate to him? What's that going to be like? Is that going to be like, uh, God, yeah, thanks. See ya. I got, God, thanks for punching my no hell ticket. I appreciate that. Smell you later. That's what happens a lot, right? And, and, and there's all kinds of stories you've heard. Maybe your story was even that you went forward at a time. And I, mean, I remember going as a kid, going down on Mile High Stadium. Billy Graham was preaching. And, and if you wanted to give your life to Christ you, and avoid hell, you could go down on the stadium in the field and respond. This was like bonus. Like I get out of hell and I get to go on the field of Mile High where John Elway plays. <laughs> right? I'm like seven years old and... I mean, who doesn't want that, right? But, but did I have any awareness or any sense that God had, what, of what God had done for me? No, not at all. Was I truly made a Christian at that point? I don't think so. So we all have, we all have situations. You know people, they've signed a card, or they've walked an aisle, or they've done something, and, but they've lived as if they just could care less about God. Well, that sort of proves that you don't really have union with Christ if you don't also have communion with him. And so communion with Christ means you leave the courtroom and you're hugging him. And you're like, thank you, come with me. I don't want to live a day apart from you. I can't believe all that you've done for me. Union and communion. When Jesus here is praying, he's praying, Father, I want them in us. I want them close to us. I in them, them in you, you in me. One, perfectly one. That's what he wants. Now, you need to understand how great this is, but there's some differences between union and communion. And, and, and the most helpful way to maybe introduce the differences is to tell you um, kind of something that, that I'm, just the way I think about it, I guess, as it relates to my dad. I, ha- I have a great dad. He loves me, I've always known he loves me. Um, the older I've gotten, the more I, thankful I've been for that as I realized that not everyone had that experience. And my dad loves me. And my dad is really into slash addicted to this game called pickleball. Have any of you ever heard of pickleball? It is cool. It really is. A, it's a great game. It's like tennis, only it's smaller. Which ten, When I play tennis, it's just like playing, hey, go run after the ball again. So this is fun because it's a smaller court, and you play with like a plastic wiffle ball and a paddle, uh, but there's a net, and, and it's usually played doubles, and it's really fun. It's like the fastest growing game for people over 50. So I've been playing some pickleball with my dad. We've spent a lot of time at Mesa RV parks um, playing, <laughs> playing pickleball. And so, so we're registered for a tournament in February. We're in a tournament together. Most of them are age-graded, but this one is all ages. And so we're going to go and just get our clocks cleaned by all these old guys because um, they're really good. Like, I, you know, I can get to more balls than them, but these are some crafty suckers. <laughs> like, they've been playing a while. They know how to place it. I mean, they're good. So my dad and I, we're all amped up. We're all excited to play in this tournament. You know, we have matching Under Armour shirts to wear and the whole thing. <laughs> so, so we're pumped. So the other day we have breakfast, and we put a bunch of different times on the calendar to go 
practice for pickleball because we'd like to not get smoked, but we probably will, but we're going to practice anyway. And so, so we've got all these times we're going to practice and we're looking forward to it and we're excited and this is going to be just a great thing to build our relationship. So imagine this. Imagine that my dad comes on the first day to pick me up for pickleball practice and he rings the doorbell, no answer. And he tries to get a hold of me, no answer. And he waits around and he waits around not there. Then finally, a couple hours later, he runs into me at the store. And he's like, dude, what happened? And I'm like, oh, I just didn't feel like coming. Well, were you going to call me? No, I didn't really want to. Okay. <laughs> I hope I wouldn't do that. But imagine I did. Here's what you need to understand. My relationship with him as my dad doesn't change. He loves me. He doesn't disown me as his son. He says, I love you. But so, so that, that relationship in its ultimate sense is, is maintained. But in its like ongoing sense, the closeness of the relationship we're going to feel, it's going to be a little strained, right? Our communion is going to be off. Until I say, you know what, Dad, I blew this. I'm sorry. This is my mistake. I, I was a jerk. Will you please forgive me? And then it's restored. And it's the same thing in our Christian life. There's a difference between union and communion. So I want to show you this chart, and, and we're going to go through this chart. We'll, we'll post this um, in a couple different places online so you can have access to it. We're going to use it uh, in the, our next series a couple times. I hope you get really familiar with this thing because to me it's a very helpful idea. And what it describes is the difference between union and communion with Christ. What, what can't change in our relationship with God and what can. And so here's the first thing. What can't change in our relationship with God is our sonship. Our sonship. Um, this is our identity. We are the children of God, right? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You've been adopted as his sons and daughters. That, that status main, stays the same, okay? That is critical. But your fellowship, your ongoing sense of friendship and sense of closeness, that can change, right? So you have these moments where you go, I, I know I'm forgiven by God, but I don't necessarily feel that close to him. A lot of times it's because of your sin has been broken, has broken that sense of fellowship. Here's another thing that can't change. God's desire for our good. God is committed to your good. The scripture says that if he didn't spare his own son, how will he not also along with him graciously give you all things? But the reality is if we're not walking close to God in communion and in friendship with him, our experience of his blessing isn't always that clear. And often we go, God, where are you? And you all know this. Who moved in that situation? We did. What can't change also is God's actual affection for us. God is committed to us. God loves us. There is nothing we could do to make him love us more. There is nothing we could do to make, us lo make him love us less. He loves us in Christ by his grace. That is permanent. But our assurance of his love for us changes. Right, imagine as I'm walking around the grocery store, the last person I'd want to see in that moment would be who? My dad. Because I'd go, I don't know how he's going to feel about this. Feel, I don't know. I, right? And so it's not that God's love for us changes. Our assurance of whether he loves us changes because we begin to feel guilty. 
And we should. What can't change also is our destiny. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you trust him, if you've been united to him, you're as certain of heaven as the saints that are already there. That can't change. But God's discipline will change. There are times when God will turn up the screws of the circumstances in your life to get your attention and to rattle you and to go, hey, come back to me. Remember what we used to have? Come back. Our security also can't change. Nothing can snatch you from God's hands. But our sense of guilt will happen if we sin. So here's what Jesus wants. Jesus wants that we would be united to him, but that we would also walk in communion with him. And it's interesting that both of these realities are symbolized by things that we do as a church. So union is symbolized in baptism. Have you ever wondered, why do we dunk somebody in the water? It's because we're symbolizing the union they have with Christ. You can read about this in Romans chapter 6. And the idea that just as Christ went down into the grave and then came back up, that's what's symbolized by baptism. We go down into the water and we come back up. It's a symbol of union. And then here, every week, we take communion. And some people go, well, why do you do that every week? Because every week we need to be reminded to come back to him. To experience that closeness again. To confess sin and to have our priorities realigned. That's what we do. Union and communion. Now my question is, where do you fall off the horse here? Uh, Martin Luther famously said that uh, Christians are like a drunk guy trying to get on a horse. He just constantly falls off from side to side. And the two sides that we fall off onto are legalism or license. Legalism. Legalism would be the idea that if you obey the rules, if you obey God's laws, then you'll have this union with God. You can be made right with God if you do the right things. right? And so these would be people who are constantly doubting whether they really have united, union with Christ. Because they're going, I haven't done enough. I haven't worked enough, right? So, so a, a good way to think about this would be if I were to ask you the question, if you were to die right now, how certain are you that you would go to heaven? A lot of people would say, ah, 80. Why? Well, I believe in Jesus, but I just don't know if I've really done enough. Like, I don't know if I've been committed enough. So, 80. Now, now listen, if that's you, you're not alone. There are a lot of people that feel that way, but here's what you need to see. You are believing legalism. You're believing that if you can do enough stuff, you could achieve God's pure and total forgiveness. That's a lie. You can only be made right through Christ. And if you trust him, by faith, not perfect faith, right? There's all sorts of stories where Jesus comes in contact with people who believe imperfectly. And one even says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. If we trust in Christ, if we receive that gift, we're united to him. And so if that's you, then you need to stop believing the lie of legalism and, and you need to trust in Christ and enjoy the freedom that comes from it. Other times we fall off the horse this way and we fall off into license. License is kind of this idea of, well, I got my ticket punched, so it doesn't really matter how I live. All my sins are forgiven, so you know what? Let's just, I'll just do whatever I want. Who cares? And, and what happens there 
is, is it's as absurd as that courtroom illustration, somebody who gets there not guilty and says, thanks God, see you later. It's absurd. You wouldn't ever do that to someone you love. And yet sometimes we do that, or we go, well, I'm as, you know, there's no condemnation for those in Christ, so I'll just do what I want. And here's what I want you to see is Jesus, Jesus was praying for more than that for you. So when we do that, and we live in this place of fractured fellowship with God, and doubt, and guilt, and all these sort of things that, that don't need to be in our lives, but they plague us, because we just have kind of ignored God. Where are you there? Some of us just keep falling back and forth. But this is an important idea. We're going to keep talking about this in the weeks to come because this idea is so, so critical. What can't change is our union with Christ, but what does change all the time is our communion, our experience of that relationship. Jesus wants us to be one with him, to be united to him. But this then should also lead us to be united with, with one another. It should lead to horizontal <coughs> horizontal unity. Look at verse 21. Look at all the places where he talks about us being one. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Jesus is praying that, that God would take people from every background and tribe and tongue and language and culture and family and make us one. Now here's a critical difference between how Jesus and the Bible sees unity and how our culture and the world seems to see it. The, the culture seems to think that unity is uniformity. It's uniformity. you got to look the same. you got to believe the same. It's not enough to just go, hey, we believe different things. Let's just be honest. It's like, no, 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 you can't believe that. You're believing the wrong thing. you got to believe this if we're going to have unity. No, no, unity is not uniformity. The best example of this is marriage. Right? In marriage, in a healthy marriage, you bring two very different people together. Right? One of you is organized. The other one's a total mess. Or just look in your car. Right? One of you is, is like frugal with money. we got to be conservative. And one of you is like, no, we got, who cares? We make a lot of money. Hopefully you have it that way. If you both are spenders, oh no. <laughs> right? I mean, you just, we're just different. I mean, it, it feels like a cruel joke that God plays on us with putting us together with people so different. Right? And, um, and yet that is the way that God brings glory to himself. Because marriage even is a picture of the Trinity. Right? The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit. And they had play different roles and do different things, but they're one. So unity is not uniformity. But it's coming together around this one idea. And if we are in Christ, if Christ is covering each of us, if Christ is united to each of us, then that is what we have in common. And there, there should be unity. So here, Jesus is praying for this unity among his followers. Not among people everywhere, but among his followers. But there's all sorts of things that hinders unity, doesn't it? I mean, would you say that the mark of the church historically seems to be unity? No. Why not? There's a couple of reasons. One is sin. Sin hinders unity. 
See, listen, sin is not just breaking the law, and sin is not just breaking God's heart, but sin always separates you from the people you love. heard a guy talking this week about how one of his key convictions in life was he wanted to be honest. And what he felt like was at stake in him being honest was he said, dishonesty erodes relationships. That's true. Sin separates us. And a lot of the disunity we experience happens when we sin against each other. And especially when we sin against each other and then don't acknowledge it and don't humble ourselves and ask forgiveness. And it just stays broken. Sin hurts our unity. Pride hurts our unity. Right? Boasting in what your personality or what you're like or what your gifts or seeing the world through your lens and thinking everyone else has to do it. Right? And you kind of drive by guilt everyone else who isn't like you. Right? That, that hurts our unity. There's also a thing that has hurt the unity of the church historically, and that is making secondary issues into primary issues. Making things that aren't so important into, like, die on this hill important. Right? I heard this story of this guy who was walking on a bridge. And he's walking, and he sees this, this other guy, and he's standing there on the rail of this bridge about to jump. And the first guy says, no, don't do it. Don't jump. There's so much to live for. And he says, like what? And he says, well, do you believe in God? Yes. First guy says, me too. Were you Muslim or Buddhist or Christian? Christian. Me too. Are you Episcopal or Catholic or Baptist? Baptist. Me too. Are you original Baptist or reformed Baptist? Reformed Baptist. Me too. Are you Reformed Baptist Church of God or Reformed Baptist Church of the Lord? Reformed Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1857? Or Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915? 1857. Die, heretic scum. And he pushed them off the bridge. All right, that's how we are. That's how the church sadly has been, right? I, I saw this cartoon as well. Some of this, this will be hard, hard to read for some, but the, the idea here is a church membership class. It says churches and Christian movements throughout history, and the guy teaching there uh, finally has circled there on the bottom. So this is where our movement came along and finally got the Bible right. And the class member says, Jesus is so lucky to have us. And, and we've all seen that kind of thing. We've all seen that. And you know, what, you know what causes that? Is when we take secondary issues and we make them primary. So we talk about this as Redemption Church as closed-handed and open-handed issues. Closed-handed means you will not get this out of our hands. We will die on this hill. We will fight to the death. This is critical for us. Things like the Trinity, that God has eternally existed, one God in three persons, that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he lived a perfect, sinless life, that he died as a substitute on the cross, that he was raised, that he's coming back again, that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, that the scripture is God's word. Right? Those are things, like, we will die for that. If you don't believe those things, we can't have unity, because that's what's absolutely core to what we believe. But then there's open-handed issues. And open-handed issues would be things like, what's the end of the world going to be like exactly? And how exactly did creation happen? And what about all these supernatural gifts and tongues and prophecies, and how should that work? And, and, and what kind of school should your kids go to? 
And all those sorts of things are secondary. Now get this, get this. They're not unimportant. Sometimes people hear that and they think, oh, well, you're saying that doesn't matter. No, 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 it matters. But it doesn't matter anywhere close to these. And what happens while all these splinters, while all the division happens, is when people take these secondary issues and they become a bigger deal. So now the rapture becomes more important than Jesus' death on the cross. That's a problem. And there's going to be disunity if that kind of thing happens. But here's the reality. You know what? Doctrine and theology, I think, rarely are what separate people and prevent disunity. You know what it is usually? It's sin. Right? Someone will leave one church and uh, we'll have people that come here and, and they say, oh, well, we left such and such place because of you know, some doctrine thing. And I don't doubt that that's part of it, but probably at its core, that's not the whole thing. They felt hurt by someone or a relationship got torn and, and it was that disunity that let, made them leave. That's how it works. Jesus' prayer is that we would be united to the Father and united to one another so that the world would notice. Look at that in verse 21. That they may all be one, that's horizontal, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, that's vertical, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that's vertical, that they may become perfectly one, that's horizontal, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. When Christians love one another, it shows the world that Jesus is king. And here's why. Because this kind of unity, the world can flap its jaws all they want about this kind of unity. It doesn't exist apart from Jesus. Only in Christ can races be reconciled. Only in Christ can young and old, rich and poor, come together. Look at it. That's the only place it happens, is in Christ. This is an amazing gathering of people right here. This is an amazingly diverse gathering of people. I pray that it would become even more diverse in age and in ethnicity and in background. That would be wonderful. But the fact that we're together here is testimony that Jesus is real. That's good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you um, sent your son to die so that we could be declared not guilty and so that we could walk close to you and experience the blessing and the assurance of your love. God, forgive us for the times when we divide up and when we elevate secondary things or when we sin against others and don't even notice or realize it or have the courage to ask for forgiveness. God, forgive us, we pray. Unite us together so that the world would know that Jesus is great. We pray that in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to respond now, and I want to invite you to respond in a couple of different ways. Um, one is I want to invite you to respond by celebrating communion with us. We mentioned that there's baptism and communion, and communion is for those who are followers of Christ. And so if you haven't experienced union with Christ, um, communion would be a time that's not yet for you. And, and I pray that this would be a time when maybe you receive Christ by faith now. You could pray. You could trust in him now rather than getting up to take communion. If you don't yet consider yourself a Christian, it would be hypocrisy to celebrate communion. So, so please, for your sake, don't do that. But if you're a follower of Christ, 
we invite you to the table. If you've been united to him, we invite you to come and to eat the bread and drink the cup. The tables are here in the corners and they're by the pole. And you can come to the tables and get the elements and then return to your seat or gather with friends or loved ones in the, in the hallways and pray if you want to. Uh, but this is a time to examine yourself and to reflect. If there are places where you're trying to earn God's favor, then before you come to the table, take some time and pray about that. And, and, and trust that Christ and what he did is enough. If there are other places where you're kind of falling into license and just kind of ignoring obedience, and then, then take some time and deal with that before you come to the table. 